the bullet train, where we've been and where we are now. Rent control decisions could soon be coming to California voters, and Silicon Valley wrestles with a Google head tax. That's what's coming up in this week's episode of California Streaming. You're listening to the California Streaming Podcast with Bobby, Jonathan, and Louie. We're just three conservative friends trying to provide some counterbalance in one of the most liberal states in the union. So let's hop on our magic choo-choo train to nowhere and talk some California politics. Hey, everybody. We're back. Today, we're actually talking about the choo-choo train. It's true. We finally figured, look, we've been bashing it enough in the previous episodes. We need to give you some context of why it's worthy of bashing. We have (laughs) many years to continue bashing this thing. Definitely. All right. With that, let's, uh, why not hop on the train, so to speak? The bullet train, where we've been and where we are. And maybe a little bit of where we're going or not. We'll see. So I'm sure everybody out there to, to some degree is familiar with the fact that California is currently undertaking a bullet train project. Although the word bullet train has become in question over the past few years, it seems. Because right there's there's sections that were going to be high speed, now they're not. Other sections that are higher than normal speed. Well, the issue was they wanted to use existing infrastructure, right? They didn't want to lay new track, and I think that's was that the problem it was running into. There's also the currently a lot of the work you see pictures of seems to be bridges, right? Uh, they're, they're getting out of the way of normal traffic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least they're attempting to do so. But I took a look at the, the layout of where the track is supposed to be. And when you actually compare that to where Amtrak currently rides, it's the same exact thing. They seem to be sharing a lot of the same track, if not just building a few different sections to accommodate their own needs. And I kind of took a look at Amtrak as the baseline of what apples to apples kind of comparison of what's going on when when Amtrak goes from the middle of the state to the bay area for example they they've got a lot of farmland they've got a lot of desert to go through and they're really kind of pushing the upper speed limits of what a conventional train can do they're going about 80 miles per hour now the bullet train the bullet train's not going to go any much faster than 80 miles per hour. They're, they'd like it to go ha- faster, but I guarantee you the federal, regu- the state regulations, not the federal, because it's going to be all in the state, it's going to be a different ballgame. They're going to say, okay, you can only go this fast. Or you can only, yeah. Well, I, sorry to stop you, Bobby. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Yeah. You're, you're telling me that in no future portion of the bullet train that it's going to go faster than 80 miles an hour? Currently, that's the design. Currently, Amtrak. No, currently, right now, Amtrak can go up to yes. eighty miles per hour. Yes. So you you can see it when when you're going down the highway, yes. you're and you notice that that train's going exactly the same speed Sometimes as you are. Sometimes they're going faster. Sometimes they're going yeah. faster because yeah. they have a dedicated line. They don't have any traffic, and they can do what they need to do. But when it comes to the bullet train, they're not going to be going much faster because it's that fast. I mean, when we compare it to like, say, Japan or, say, China, where they have their bullet trains, 
they go some of those about upwards, of, and I've <laughs> even seen some are upwards of two hundred miles an hour. Well, those I, are I, the way out in the well, and I think that's isn't that the picture most people have of the that's what train? they're thinking, right? Correct. But that's those are I the thought. the maglev ones. We're not building maglev over here. Sorry, but we're not. They're going to be on rails. They got special track. It's great, but it's not going to be the same thing. I looked further into Amtrak and I went, okay, how many people actually ride Amtrak right now? Right now, three million people, three million riders of a state that has over uh, in this state, in this state, right? Three million riders. Now you divide it by 365, you come out to about 10,000 riders per day. Not even that. It's less than that. I just kind of rounded it up for everybody. What are we now, now, don't buy my head off because I'm not talking the subways, you know, in San Francisco and L.A. BART, Metrolink. BART, Metrolink. They have their own rider share. But what I'm talking wanting to get from one side of the state to the other. Now we're talking about 10,000 people in total. This is not going to end well because they're going to be competing for the same customer base. I would like it if it went from L.A. to Las Vegas, which Louis really kind of supports on the back end of it because he loves well, Vegas. I, I think it's, it's huge if the thing's going faster than 80 miles an hour. Like This blows my mind that it's not going to go that much faster than, say, an Amtrak with a wide-open with a wide open path, right? I mean, that's what you're essentially saying. That's what I'm saying. Let's even say it gets to 100 miles an hour. Seriously, though, you're still going from San Fran to Los Angeles at 100 miles an hour? Well, does anybody know if the if, uh, the bullet train makes stops like the Amtrak does? Oh, definitely. That's... Well, it's got to go from major city to major city, and then you have to disembark and take another form of transportation, either another train that's in the area or... Uh, well, the, a then, bus or something like well, that. So then that kind of begs the question of if you're constantly starting and stopping, starting and stopping, how much time are you really picking up? And that's part of the joke of this too, is when you start to look at the pathway that it takes between San Fran and the Central Valley, you start to see where a lot of people have talked about the fact that there were some uh, mayors of cities and some backroom deals of we need the bullet train to go through our town and then snake and, oh, we needed to go through our town. Just like how the railroads have always been. Correct. And so you can totally see when you look at a map of it going from the Bay Area over to, I I think the main point is Modesto or or something over there in in the valley. It does this, granted there's terrain, but it still snakes through certain cities in order to appease people that were at the table. Well, you said uh, backroom deals. So I took a look at the current board of directors, and there was one person who, who popped out at me real quick because I've seen this guy's name a million times. His name is Daniel Curtin. And Daniel Curtin, he's uh, currently serving as the director of the Conference of Carpenters. So he was giving this, um, he was appointed to the board of trustees here for the the train but he's also on the board for many 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 other uh boards across the state this guy's everywhere because he's a union head official he's got his tentacles everywhere you want to pull back the curtain and see who's really pulling the strings it's this guy daniel Curtin. daniel Curtin. wait what's his name again 
annual curtain. Everything seems to really slow down when he gets on board. In charge of dams. He's in charge of road construction sometimes. He gets appointed to a whole bunch of different departments. This guy sounds like a renaissance man. It's a pretty powerful position. He's on the Economic Development Commission, the Industrial Welfare Commission. This guy's everywhere. And it's because life. It's the same old same old ploy. He's got union money. Union money pays for politicians. Politicians appoint him to the board of whatever. And then the board decides to get the union labor that he represents. Wow. Back and forth, and away we go. If you guys let me take one second, I, I kind of want to start back at the beginning and just do a couple of bullet points that bring us in, in some of the props that were passed, some of the cost estimates, all the way from the beginning to today, just so we have some context. So back in 2008, the cost of the San Francisco to Anaheim route was originally estimated, to in, again, this is in 2008 dollars, at $33 billion. Not monopoly money. No. But as we'll see here in a second, that is certainly less than the current projections of the cost for this project. So again, back in 2008, $33 billion. So a lot of people in California may remember that also back in 2008, we voted on Proposition 1A, which was the original bond measure to start the building of the California high-speed rail. And one of the major, major proponents of it back then was, I guess, a longtime California politician. His name is Quentin Kopp. Right? So he was, he was pushing this thing at the very beginning, pushing California voters to vote for Prop 1A. I'm going to play for you a clip from Quentin Kopp because now apparently he is one of the biggest opponents to the high-speed train. Let me play this clip real quick. The ballot measure prohibits taxpayer subsidy, and that was an important part of convincing voters in 2008 to approve the bond measure. That, that was a clip from Boss Hog? <laughs> right. Uh, the, the, they're, they're about to hop into the going. orange car and go find... Uh, okay, so this guy now... I think, did he help build the original railroad? <laughs> he, he's the one who well, I mean, hammered that, down the gold spike. On the, yeah. <laughs> he comes from experience, and that's why he's here. So as you, as you can kind of get from the clip, he, he's skeptical because the big part that he's skeptical about is originally in Prop 1E it was said and was, quote-unquote, promised to the voters of Prop 1A, we will not need to use any monies from the California coffers once this thing is built and running because it will be self-sustaining, which goes back to Bobby's points about ridership and Amtrak. And I think anyone who's been following the news lately knows, and again with Bobby's numbers, that's just not going to happen. I think all estimates would suggest we're going to have to kick money into this thing every year. So we've already broken uh, part of the promises of Prop 1A. One of the major problems is, of course, they were anticipating that some privatized money would start coming in and wanting to get on board with this, uh, with this project that is not surfaced. It's non-existent. They see this as a boondoggle. They'll allow the state to continue to do overruns before, 
before they jump into the rescue. And when they ru- come into the rescue, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us a lot. Definitely. Now, I took a look. They, they came out with their financial budget uh, just a, few, a month ago. I, th- I think it was a couple days ago. Yeah. But I, I took a look at it, and they're looking at a total ridership uh, revenue. And this is the high case of $715 million. They're going to have net operating cash flow in the positive the first year of operation in 2029 of $318 million. Net positive cash flow from this thing. They're high. There's no way. What are they smoking? That will be impossible. This was the best case scenario. They had other case scenarios, but they were also in the positive net flow cash. It boggles my mind. I want to smack somebody. I don't know what they were thinking. Okay, so let's continue down. That was 2008, Prop 1A, right? 2012, the California legislature approved construction of high-speed system, and Governor Brown signed the bill. That year, 2012, plan estimates came in for the final cost at $68 billion for phase one. So what was it, four years, 2008, 2012? Magically, the numbers went from 30-something million to 60-something million. Perfect. In 2014, state legislators and Governor Jerry Brown agreed on appointing the state's annual cap and trade funds so that 25% went to high-speed rail. And this... This is where we've talked about this in previous episodes. This is where gas tax, cap and trade, the primary reasons in this state, at least, for this stuff happening, I think, is so that they can try and shore up some of the financial problems that the high-speed rail is having. Right. And you start thinking about where all that money could be going to, all the infrastructure that needs help. We talk about the roads. The gas tax goes to the roads. You hear from a lot of people that say, man, if the gas tax really did go to the roads, I'd have no problem paying the extra money. But they look around and they see how awful the roads are. I mean, L.A. is pretty bad, but the Bay Area, I think, is 10 times worse. Every time I drive up there, I mean, there is legit, you know, foot by foot potholes on the five. If they had taken all this money and paved the roads with gold, I would have preferred that. Because at least I could go to other states and go, look, we've got this golden road. road. You can't afford it. Screw all you guys. What a joke. I mean, what are we in so far? What was the total price tag as right now? Remind me. So so that brings me up to more current times. In May of 2018, the LA Times in an article said... So like two months ago. Right, right. Quote, Business plan released Friday by the California High-Speed Rail Authority show its projected baseline cost is now $77 billion, up 20% from two years ago. And it was originally projected at $33 billion in 08. That's right. That's right. And 10 years later, we've more than doubled that projection. But, but they must have capped it now. We're good. We're done. It's never no more price up. increases. Yeah. Let, me, let me play one more clip if I can. This is... So I guess this, this guy's new, apparently, to the board. Dan Richard is a chairman of the board of the High-Speed Rail Authority. Listen to what he said recently. 
There is no option of doing nothing. Um, we're going to have more people in this state. The cost of doing nothing means more people stuck in traffic, more airline delays. All these things cost us money. The better deal for the taxpayers is to invest in a modern rail system than to continue to rely on just building more and more freeway lanes. I would be great on a rape crisis center. It's already happening. Just sit back and let it happen, baby. Exactly. Uh, this guy must know so much more than other people do because he knows exactly how all of this is going to turn out in 20 years. And so because he knows all that, this is exactly what we have to well, do. Well, it's a typical scam. They want you to feel that, hey, we've been talking about this for 10 years now. We're super pot committed. Like, there's no turning back. So let's just keep pumping money into it and we'll pull it off. It's like the typical contractor scam. Yeah, I'm going to estimate to renovate your house for $20,000 and then they've gutted the place. Oh, you know, it's going to be another 10 grand to really pull this off. And then what are you going to do? Your house has been gutted and you need to put it back together. The the rails become that. They've they've put so much money into it that now they want to make us feel like there's no other option but to complete it when they haven't even done anything yet. Right. How, how many times does private enterprise whether it be an oil company, fill in the blank, right? They go down a road. They decide, we're going to explore this thing. We're going to try it. It doesn't work. They take a write-off and they stop. You know, it's funny because it it actually is an option to do nothing. Right. So I think, uh, and and that's part of like when you look at uh, when they had uh, Carmageddon on the 405, when they tore down the freeway, it had to occur in a weekend, and they put it to the contractor to, you either finish this thing in a weekend and get the freeway back open, or you face heavy fines and penalties and everything else. This project's just going to take for forever. And I think part of it is, is that we're not getting some state-of-the-art super train like we think of when we think about the Asian countries and things like that. Right. We're getting existing infrastructure, old tracks, old railroad ties, using some kind of newer train and engine, but not probably going to exceed the speed limits of the current train on a good day with wide open track. I don't think that's going to get more people to ride it. I just don't. I I hate to burst your bubble, Louie, but but there's no other option. That's what we have to do, apparently. We have to use old rail tides. Can I get you guys' support for the gold paved road from... Does that happen instead of this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Use the money that way. I feel like, though, with our mounting homeless problem, they're going to be chunking off pieces of the road. Right? We we can't get security at the border. How are we going to get security for the gold (laughs) road? You have people that get into uh, light poles and fixtures just to steal the copper wire and electrocute themselves. You don't think people are going to scrape off a piece of the gold road? That's a sense of pride, Louie. You look at it and you go, look, people don't go to the Statue of Liberty of I-5 and in say, my hand. that's a piece of copper. That's a Statue of Liberty, okay? All right. So hopefully that brings some people kind of up to speed at a high level on what's going on with the high-speed rail. I I've personally, unfortunately, construction-wise, we're just in the first inning of this thing. And I think in terms of cost estimates, we're just in the first inning. There's no way this thing's going to 2029, that's when we're all going to hop on board. There, okay, I'll challenge that one big time. 
I, I think you easily see a 2030-something number if this thing ever gets finished in the first place. Right. I mean, we've seen just the inefficiencies with Amtrak in general in the state. So I don't feel like this is going to be some uh, highly economical and efficient project. Not miraculously. No. Let's move on. The next topic is kind of an interesting one. Uh, it's cropped up around the country different times, has been in California before, and it's back on the docket. Rent control decisions are coming to California voters. Rent control. Oh, goody. Let's all have one big hug and make sure that we do something for everybody. Benefits everyone. At least on the surface. Verbally, it will look like it's benefiting everybody. So, John, is this statewide? Because normally rent control is at the city level, right? John, let me ask you, and you can lay it down. Please explain to the people what exactly rent control is. Yeah, so rent control is when, let's use the example, because it's happening in San Francisco. Let's use the example of San Francisco where they come in and say, look, you as a property owner and someone who rents your property out, uh, apartment complexes, whatever, you are not allowed to increase the rent for that property beyond X percent or, or, or some predetermined amount by the government each year. It's in, in some ways, it's similar to the, uh, the property taxes we were talking about a few episodes ago, but in this case, it's the price of rent. Well, John, this sounds fantastic. I don't know why this would be a problem. I, as a poor person, get a fixed rent. And the landlord gets stuck to because he's a rich bastard. Tell me how I lose on this. So, like most times... When somebody comes in and tries to artificially control market dynamics and forces, this, this sort of activity causes uh, problems in other areas. I would admit the person who gets to rent that apartment for the price they get to rent it for, that may look good. What you've done, though, is you've begun to skew the incentives for new builders of property or even... Think about this case. Someone who owns that apartment complex is now locked into how much they can rent it out for. Well, why don't I just redo what this complex is? Either turn it into condos for sale instead of apartments for rent, go in and renovate, because you've now skewed my incentives for wanting to continue to rent it out like this. You don't believe it. I got a statistic here for you. Six of the nation's 11 most expensive rental markets are in this state. And rents have increased 40% across the Bay Area in the last three years, according to a January report of a nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. The median rent for a two-bedroom apartment is $1,800 in Los Angeles and $3,300 in San Francisco. Now, the problem in San Francisco is obviously they're running out of room to expand. They're not expanding. They did that already. They created San Jose. <laughs> That's the suburb of San right. Francisco. The problem here is, of course, you get in front. Whenever you want to build a new um, domicile, an apartment building, new houses, what have you, 
you got to go in front of some kind of commission. It, it doesn't matter if it's the county, the state, or coastal commission or something. You go in front of a commission and you beg and you plead and you say, look, it's got solar panels and uh, it's housing associations so that it doesn't turn to crap. And, and we did this and we did that. And it still goes in front of a panel. And they ultimately make the decision of whether you can or cannot build a home for people. This is a problem all over the state. doesn't matter where you're at. They're continuously wanting to build more houses, but they can't. Right. And I get a little bit mixed on this, having been an apartment dweller in a very expensive market for a while, uh, Santa Barbara. My rent for like a 600-square-foot shoebox was $1,200 when I moved in like six years ago. It didn't go up the first two years. Then it went up like 25 bucks. Then they sold the building and my rent went up $350 in one year. That, that was a pretty drastic jump. And I know it caused a lot of people to move out of the apartment building. I see the market force there though. If you can't afford it, you move out. Someone else who can pay for it moves in. The hard part with Santa Barbara was everything was so explosive and volatile and and we've seen that even with commercial property there's entire areas where they just go unrented on the commercial side because nobody can afford to go in there and there's property owners that could care less if they're shoving out uh, an institution that's been in the area for a long time they want higher rent and they'll even take a vacant a vacant uh space for a while to find a new tenant so I get the market dynamics of, hey, it's my property. I charge what I want. You either afford it or you don't. As a renter, it sucks. I get that part too. But most of the time or oftentimes, those those sorts of situations that you explain are also in areas where supply is artificially limited, right? Right. So let's go back to normal market forces, supply, demand. As rents start to increase... Normally, you would have builders coming online saying, well, hey, I want some of those rents. I'm going to build a new property. Uh, You got a problem. Because most of the time, especially in this state, to Bobby's point, that's not going to happen. Right now, we're coming off of uh, national-wide low sales in homes, in new homes. People aren't buying homes anymore. It's The recession is part of it. But again... It's getting qualified for a loan. But right now, in this state, we only sold 39,000 new and resale home transactions, according to escrow. Yeah. I I have to imagine, though, especially in California, the price of a home is so expensive that the generation now or the, the people in their 20s, early 30s, can't afford a home. I mean, for the most part... I so that's why I wonder what the kind of the skew is uh, is on that data because I think you just see an overwhelming amount of people that can't afford to purchase a home, so they're stuck renting, and then the rent's going up, and the rent almost equals a mortgage payment. And you say, well, hey, if you can make a mortgage payment, you can make, you know, or if you can make that, you can buy a home. But then everything else you need to qualify for the home plus down payment plus, you know, all the fees that go with that and closing costs. That's a big chunk of change to come up with. So 
that's a gigantic problem in the state. You have more people living at home with their folks or maybe renting with a bunch of other roommates than you have buying homes. So let me go back to your original question in terms of how it relates to California. So this comes from the KCRA website. This was published a couple days ago. Let me read to you how they explained it because here's the details of what's actually being proposed to have happen. They're calling this the Affordable Housing Act. The Affordable Housing Act, if passed by the voters, would repeal the Costa-Hawkins or Costa-Hawkins Rental Housing Act. And that was passed about 23 years ago, 1995. The Costa-Hawkins law does three specific things in limiting a local municipality's ability to control rent. It prohibits rent control on single-family homes. It prohibits rent control on housing units built after Feb 1, 1995. And it allows for what's known as vacancy control, which allows landlords to set rents to market rates when moving from one tenant to the next. That would go away. So that's the proposal here, is if you pass this Affordable Housing Act, the Costa-Hawkins law goes away. I'll tell you about one of the repercussions that are going to come out from this thing. And it happens all over the country, wherever they institute rent control. So a landlord is thus told, you need to have a certain amount of rent-controlled apartment building or, or apartment units within whatever that you own. So most landlords, they might own one apartment building or several, the 10 or 20. What they end up doing is they end up combining these rent-controlled units into one apartment unit, usually because they can ignore the existing upkeep for an apartment unit and wash all these people who are never going to leave should they risk uh, rising uh, rent rates and thus you artificially creating a ghetto? Exactly. No, no, think right. Th- think exactly what you're saying. Think that through. My, I'm getting, as a, as a property owner, I'm getting limited levels of rents and that I can only increase every uh, X percent every year. What money do I have to keep up the insides of that place? Not to mention there's probably going to be lower turnover in the units because somebody doesn't want to move and have to go become succumb to a higher rent somewhere else. They want their rent locked in low. Naturally, how will that not occur, what you're saying, Bobby? Right. People with money will inevitably move to wherever suits them best. They don't want to be in a crime-ridden area. They have the money. They make the decision to go somewhere else. They're willing to pay a larger amount for quality. Is is there, uh, and I might have missed this, a percentage rate at what rent can go up a year? Because I'm wondering, because, you know, if it's a fixed cost or if it, if it can increase from year to year because, you know, for the, the landowner, the landlord, they've got the cost of property tax that goes up at say, you know, one to 2% a year. They've got the, the rate of utilities and things if that's rolled into your rent. So you wouldn't want a fixed rent cost. Meanwhile, the tenants getting stuck with costs that go up every year, right? You know, it's a great point, Louie, back to what we were talking about a couple episodes ago 
what a recipe for a disaster. I mean, but that's, that's the forte of the California government. But what a recipe for disaster of, I'm going to fix the rent that you get. And oh, by the way, uh, the, <laughs> we're about to undo the limits on commercial property taxes. Right. So that mix, I don't see how that doesn't equal prosperity across the board. <laughs> uh, I had a clip for Thomas Sowell, who's a famous uh, economist, and he's going to lay down exactly why this is a bad idea. What's going on is that they're uh, restricting uh, the amount of housing that can be built. And obviously, if you restrict the supply while the demand is growing, the prices will go up through the roof. Qui bono? Who, do, who benefits from this arrangement? Politicians, most of all. How? Because they get the reputation of being for the poor and the downtrodden, and that they're, and that they're uh, setting aside affordable housing units, usually in some token amounts. What a fantastic way to lock in votes <laughs> in the city, right? Oh, of course. You're for the poor. Now, we have problems with homelessness in this state. In fact, we've got it pretty bad. Why isn't the solution building more homes, more places for these people to stay, not restricting the amount of supply, creating the opportunity for more supply? And the real reason is because the state politicians don't want to do sprawl. They don't want to go into further hurting the environment. They don't like suburbs. They prefer if they all went away and we all lived in huge New York-style, Manhattan-style dwellings. That's what they would rather we do. But they're crazy. They're completely insane. They want us to live in these big municipalities as something Agenda 21 style of type of living. And we just simply cannot continue living this way. Well, and it's the same thing for, uh, you know, we talked about it on one of the last episodes about PG&E and the wildfires and their culpability in that. But I think there's actually a commercial running right now. I forget what it's about, but it's, it's basically illustrating the fact that environmentalists have prevented us from forestry efforts and actually clearing out some areas and burning out areas that uh, make it safer for the people that kind of live in that interface. And then you just get this giant problem because we're not allowed to, you know, there's the three-legged red frog, and so you can't cut down the trees in this area. So it just gets overgrown. It takes its toll. Things catch on fire. You lose entire neighborhoods. And it's it's the same way with preventing the housing. We don't want to build more houses to give us more inventory because, you know, you've got the red-legged frog in this area over here and we can't, we have this just down the road in Santa Barbara. You can't use this giant chunk of beach over by Vandenberg Air Force Base because of the snowy plover and the beach closes basically when you'd want to go there from like May to October. Can't go there. Those are horrible beachy months. That's the nesting season, right? So the environmental laws in this, state make it impossible to do any kind of building so that you can add more inventory to the market and hopefully bring prices down on their own or any other kind of infrastructure needs like that. It's awful. Another problem is of course, 
the congregation of all these big businesses in the state, for some damn reason, they've all chosen to be here. So, of course, a workforce has decided to come. The jobs are here. They want to come. Well, in our next segment, that might not be the case. <laughs> that anymore. might not be the case. Yeah. Business is, uh, is under the crosshairs here pretty soon. Well, and that's, that's part of it, you know, not jumping ahead or, or getting on too big of a tangent, but Silicon Valley is now making so much money that legislators feel that they can just kind of stick it to them and they're not going to go anywhere or they're just going to take it. And, oh, headed to California. Yeah. But, if, you know, we've seen over the last couple of years that businesses are leaving here in record rates. And it may take some time, right? Things don't happen. A business doesn't pick up and move because of legislative changes overnight. But I think what we're starting to see is some of these businesses, especially manufacturing businesses down in Southern California, over the last decade or two, slowly but surely, packed their bags and left. One of the saddest deals is aerospace in Southern California. You know, oh, yeah. Lockheed Martin and Burbank and stuff used to be huge, especially during the war and uh, skunk works and that whole deal. And now it's basically all of that's most of that's gone from the L.A. area. You have some stuff still out in the high desert, like by Edwards Air Force Base yes. and stuff. But Long Beach Airport is a joke. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, there's not there's huge hangars that are just total shells. Nothing's right. in them. Right. Yeah. We've totally lost aerospace. Um, and then. In this county, we still have Raytheon. Raytheon still does a lot of stuff in the county, but yeah, for the most part. And down in the San Diego area, and, and it obviously is still... Stuff near the, military installations, you know. Well, it has to do with the universities, and they love giving these corporations cheap interns to uh, their job futures, and then they end up uh, creating uh, corporations on their own, and hopefully they take off and they become Google. We make it incredibly difficult to even have a business in this state. Starting a small business in California is awful. As somebody who owns one, who knows people who own businesses, like the amount of, I mean, you pay 800 bucks for just the luxury of being an LLC. Other states, that's free. (laughs) It's free or it's under, you know, $50. That's just a blanket tax. You pay that just, just to have that luxury item. I don't see how the rent control issue is going to be different than any other issue, unfortunately. It's basically going to be that the out, outcomes and ramifications of doing it are going to be obscure enough from the source of what caused the problems that the politicians are going to continue to be able to say, I care about you. See, I locked in your rent. You need to vote for me. And people will because they're not going to be able to track the secondary and tertiary market effects that these sorts of policies have. You already have the great divide already. I mean, lots of people are already four, five roommates living in a, in a converted closet. And that, yeah, it's a real closet. And they're, they're barely making it then. Right. So I think it all goes into the master plan of you kind of going to what you're saying. If you're going to say open the border and let everybody come into this state, there's nowhere for them to live. They certainly can't afford the rent. They certainly aren't going to buy a home. 
So they end up living in garages and things like that. You start playing with the rent market and then you start making places a lot cheaper to live. You're going to get, in a lot of situations, you're going to get a different class of people that are going to be renting an apartment. And I'm sorry, but when you look at, you either become like a slumlord type land, you know, uh, property or you look at places that have dirt cheap rent, government housing, stuff like that, and they are run down. Yeah, it's a bit of a chicken egg, but but you're right in that, like Bobby said earlier and talked about, these policies are also going to feed that spiral downward. Upkeep, people not going to be moving. In nobody order wants to, to pay for anything. Well, right. Right. Every, it comes down to nobody wants to pay for anything. Well, you were talking about the slumlord, and I remember a story back in the day. The, the city came down on a slumlord. He had a whole bunch of illegal citizens, illegal uh, living in his uh, in his units, five ten people in in a, an apartment, and they shut him down. They say you've been doing this too long. We're fining you. We're taking it away. We're going to take you to jail. And he turns and he goes, "Where else are these people going to live? I'm the good guy here, but I can't keep it up with all your stupid rules." So he's the slumlord. Well, he's pretty slummy to begin with, but it's not true. that he was an angel. But it's true, though. We want to open the border. We want to give everybody welfare. We want to give everybody health care. We want to give everybody a place to live. We want to take care of their kids. We want to give them free education. Nobody wants to pay for anything. And then we want to let in a lot of people that can't pay for anything. They're coming here without anything. And then we want to say, well, yeah, you're right. They can't live anywhere. So, Bobby, that building you own, you can only charge 800 bucks for each one of those spots. We don't care what Bobby paid for that building. Bobby could have paid $2 million for that apartment building. He might, he's probably still got a note on that apartment building. And then we say you can only charge the bare minimum to, to rent that place out. It's like they say, you can keep taking the eggs from the, the golden eggs from the goose, but one day the goose is just going to get up and walk away. Yeah. And, and that's what you see people doing. They're just leaving the state. Losing money, but I'll make it up in volume. <laughs> yeah, right. Turn so, and burn. So for the third topic, Louis kind of, uh, at least geographically, went to the spot earlier, and we were talking about business. The third topic, Silicon Valley City Mole's a Google tax. Now, everybody's probably familiar with the recent Amazon. Yeah, same kind of deal. No, lay it down, lay it down. So um, there were a couple of people in the city council up in Seattle are they liberal? Uh, I'm not even sure that word applies. I think I think one of the ladies, uh, I forget her name, but she's uh, an avowed socialist, if, if memory serves. And she got elected based on that. She was totally open and honest. And so they had the idea of, in order to solve the homeless problem, and obviously we're on radio or podcasts, you can't see me, but I'm, I'm, I'm air, air quoting, quotes. yeah, mm-hmm. solve the homeless problem. They wanted to apply a headcount tax on businesses that did, I think it was more than 10 million, 10 million. 10 million in revenue a year. Well, certainly Amazon based in Seattle applies and it easily does more than $10 million, but whatever other businesses did more than 10 million in a year, they would have some sort of tax applied to them. And the, those tax revenues would be siphoned off, I guess, put in a lock box as we've talked about before. 
and used solely to solve the homeless issue. Well, they started off with $10 million in revenue. I mean, that's just money coming in. You'd be surprised how many medium-sized companies really kind of generate a lot of cash flow. Now, they have costs, and they might not even be making a profit off of that, but they've got revenue, and that's what they want. They want to... They, Drawn a line. They don't want any sneaky net income in there. You know, fancy, uh, fancy calculus taken away from their potential of making tax revenue. Well, we just saw in the ruling this week with the sales tax that now everybody's got to charge sales tax regardless of the state. And I thought it was really interesting that the nexus they used, you know, normally when you charge sales tax, you only need to, at least for California, you only have to charge sales tax if you are selling within California to somebody who is receiving within California, the shipping address is California, you are said to have nexus in that state. Now, the courts ruled that when you place a cookie on somebody's browser, it's essentially now taking place in the state. And so I thought that was a gigantic leap. I really want to read the arguments on that as somebody who's techie, but that's what they're using as creating nexus. And what makes, say, Amazon so amazing for people, because free shipping has kind of gotten less and less over the years with Prime going up, is the fact that you don't pay a lot of sales tax. But states are tired of losing out on that tax, and they're getting butthurt about it. I mean, that's really the, the bottom line. It, it's going to kill small businesses online, but it might help brick and mortars. I could see it helping brick and mortar shops. And and I think the underlying theme of all of these issues that we're talking about, and especially the one about basing it on revenue, because the politicians know that, that business owners, people in market participants are smart and they're going to find ways to minimize the cost and the impacts to them. Right. Which is why, basing it on revenue tries to attempt to circumvent any sort of deductibility or extra costs that could help minimize the head tax, et cetera. But that brings to the point, how do these people not see, by these people, I mean the local politicians or the, of these cities and, or who knows, this may go to the state level at some point. How do these people not see the myriad of options that are still available to these companies, like Louis mentioned earlier, picking up and moving away being one, although there's probably others before them that are easier than that. These corporations have options in front of them and they're going to exercise them. Why would they do otherwise? Just so that everybody knows when it came to Amazon, they were looking at a $3 million extra tax that they'd have to pay the city. They looked at it and they went, do you think we just have money lying around? Well, it is Amazon, but that's a bad reality. Yeah, it is a bad example. But at the same time, they were in the middle of building their new headquarters in inside the city. They were laying down the foundations. And when they came up with the argument, the city, the Amazon responded by shutting down the construction on their new building. This got the attention of union heads who also pay, contribute 
to the politicians who are sitting on the city council. Uh, they were dumbfounded when one constituent group was thus put against another constituent group who both support the same candidate. They were in a big muddle trying to figure this all out and how to appease everybody. So for Amazon, we all remember that they're, they're choosing a new second headquarters somewhere. There's a sweepstakes going on, right? There's this weird sweepstakes, but they're going to build a new building somewhere. And I bet they're going to switch their paperwork so that their new headquarters is going to be their official headquarters for tax purposes. And their original headquarters is going to be the satellite office or whatever they want to call it. I, I don't know the legal stuff behind that, but I'm pretty sure they'll work it out. I'm going to guess that they have a legal team that's big enough and savvy enough to figure out how to get that done. How to get by the uh, the government? Yeah, that that's back to the seems point. difficult, right? That that that's all that's going to happen here. When you try and put these, it's like whack a mole, right? You you can you can try and apply this tax and try and beat down the business over here. They're just going to pop up somewhere else. They're always going to be one step ahead, because you have to believe that, especially like you and. uh you hinted at there's a lot of uh, political footballs that get tossed around. There's a lot of politicians that get funded and you have to believe that these companies get kind of the heads up well in advance of what's going down and their crack legal teams are already figuring out four steps in the future. Well, when it comes, when it comes to Google and this proposed tax, I'm sure that they looked at the Amazon case and they went, Oh man, they could possibly do this where we, are located, but more than likely they're not. Oh my God, they're actually considering this. What's wrong with these fools? That's it. Well, Sheriff, get the lobbyists out on the phone real quick. We're always going down this road of just cutting off our nose to spite our face. Like exactly, we're staring at the golden goose. These these companies bring in a ton of money to the state, and then we want to take advantage of them and stick it to them. And Hey, yeah, uh, we're going to go ahead and charge you uh, three, four, five million dollars in additional tax, and you're going to just take it? Like, we expect people to just take it, and they're not going to pick up their shop and go somewhere else? Why wouldn't you? It's I would. The Detroit way. Why, why wouldn't you? I- and I understand the issue here between local versus state, but, but the element of greed involved. You know, it's funny. People always rail on private businesses for being greedy. Let, let's examine the level of greed here. We're in a state which isn't the same in Washington. There is no income tax uh, or personal income tax in Washington, but we're here in California in a state. All of these Google employees are already paying into the system in terms of an income tax to California, not to mention all of their shopping at, at groceries, uh, et cetera, around the area where they're in contributing to the local sales. So tax. We're all living in one of the most expensive areas in the world. At what point is the revenue enough? And that's part, that, that's one of the overarching questions here. Back to the greed of government that they're never going to get enough, yet it's in these sorts of situations, it's private businesses that get railed for being well, greedy. How much was that wall of debt? Because I'll tell you how much is enough. 
<laughs> well, I'll, and here's the other scary part is that we can say that private industry is greedy. Private industry does not have a monopoly on violence, as we've talked about a lot of times. Correct. So not only is government greedy, but they can use the full extent of the law to extend that greed. And that is, that's the scary part of the whole deal is they can really just say, you know, Google can say, this is awful tax. I don't agree. And then they can put a measure on the ballot and the people can vote. And then Google is screwed and Google doesn't get a choice. And now the law is forcing them to pay. I mean, that, that's the crazy part. A corporation, you can say, oh my God, they're greedy. Great. You can choose not to patronize that company. You cannot buy their stuff. You can go eat somewhere else if you don't like that restaurant. You have market choices. You don't have market choices with government, at least within the same state, unless you move out of state. Exactly. You, and they're going to make that market choice. There's no optionality. Yeah. Hard for me to be on the same side as Google as a po- when it comes and to And I will say this. I will say this, though. Google has a poor history of being uber liberal to the extent where they found themselves now in legal trouble. Actually, they've tried to be so liberal that they have different minority groups within Google suing them because that's the problem you get with identity. Some reason they can't retain black employees. Right. And then they, uh, uh, they fired what's his name after issuing his memo. So, but I will still defend them as a business. Absolutely. For, for the fact of defending the market. And and I don't blame them, right? I mean, because this is the this is the argument brought up with like a Warren Buffett, etc. I don't see Google pulling out the corporate checkbook to write Mountain View, California, a big check for this amount, right? Because they they have a responsibility to their shareholders to not they have a they have a responsibility to grow the value of the company and increase the share the share of each uh, the price of each of their shares, so. From a from a business perspective, they I get it. They shouldn't. People think of I think a lot of a lot of people have no idea how the economy works. I was going to say business, but I think it's way more wide than that. Opposed from the Scrooge McDuck theory, right? But that a business doesn't have emotion. A a, a corporation, I should say, a corporation is not a person. It is exactly. an entity. It is comprised of lots of people, and people will look at like. Jeff Bezos or or whoever, and they they look at that as the emotion or the the human element of the entity. But at the end of the day, the entity is the shareholders. It is the hundreds of thousands of people that own shares of Google or Amazon or whoever. And when Amazon's trading at like seventeen hundred dollars a share, those people have a pretty large vested interest in what Amazon or Google does with their money. And it's true, the founders of these companies are often those that have the most of those shares, but nothing prevents you or you or you, anyone listening, from going and becoming a shareholder of this company. Well, and I would argue that, and you could probably answer this way better than me, that that entity has a fiduciary responsibility yes. to be as efficient as possible with that money for me as a shareholder. Like they have a responsibility to me to make the best market choices and to, if that means picking up shop in California and going to Texas, because that's, what's going to make me not lose my ass in the market, then that that's what it is. We don't have time to cover it here and, but maybe in a future episode, but there is a fantastic back and forth discussion that occurred in reason magazine 
oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And one of the participants of the three is Milton Friedman. Another one is John Mackey, the the CEO, or I guess he's, yeah, Whole Foods, Whole Foods even yeah. though they just got bought by Amazon. But it, um, but it's this interesting back and forth between CEOs and Milton Friedman. Which Mackey is a big libertarian. That's right. right. Yeah. And the whole premise of the discussion is what is the social responsibility of a corporation? And you actually see a wide spectrum of discussion, all from avowed libertarians, but all taking slightly different angles on, to, to speak exactly to what you were just talking about. So maybe in a future episode, we'll Yeah, I we'll, think we'll that'd be that. super interesting. But for now, it's time for the James Woods Tweet of the Week. We stuck with that, huh? That's right. We still haven't come up with something new. I gave you guys a week to figure it out. <laughs> That's our it, goal. It, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, guess what? Next week's probably going to be the same. So I think this one's a this one's a pretty good one. The lovely Kamala Harris tweeted, "Sexual harassment and assault are real in this country, from the factory floors to movie sets and even in our courts." We need to confront it head on in every workplace. James Woods tweets, lucky for you, sleeping your way to power avoided all that nasty business. Ba-da-da-da. The ending's almost got to be a rim shot. Oh, that's true. <laughs> because his that's responses are normally shot. a... Uh... <laughs> yeah, there, it is. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Well, that was another episode down. Uh, go ahead and catch us with new episodes every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. on Apple iTunes and Google Play. Have a good week. Thanks, everybody.